Hello, Dr. Chris Frickman here. Today I am honored to be able to share an interview I did with Dr. Tim Noakes. Tim Noakes, if you don't know, is a professor out of Cape Town, South Africa. He has been a researcher and a clinician and an author for decades. He has hundreds of research articles. Um, He has quite a few books as well, including running injuries and waterlogged. A a lot of it is based around endurance athletics. And his latest book, The Real Meal Revolution, talks about the Banting diet. And uh, we get into that in this interview. He is also a diabetic and he shares that and he shares his story about being a marathon runner and getting diabetes and what you can do to prevent that yourself. So this was such an honor doing this podcast. I think you're going to get a lot of value from it. So without further ado, here is Professor Timothy Noakes. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Okay, everyone, this is Dr. Chris Frickman. I am here with Professor Tim Noakes of the Tim Noakes Foundation. Professor Noakes, how are you today? Very well, thank you, Chris. And awesome. Yourself? Oh, I'm doing great. So it's 9 a.m. where I am in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And are you in Cape Town? Is that right? Cape Town, South Africa, and it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Perfect. Well, wow, I really appreciate you taking some time uh, towards the end of your day to go over and share some of what you're doing. Uh, I think it's really important work. I was on your website, the the Noakes Foundation website, and it says that your goal there at the Noakes Foundation is to support the dietary revolution that will reverse the global epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And That is a huge statement, and I'm wondering if you can fill my listeners in a little bit. Why is that important, and how are you doing that? Well, thank you very much, Chris. I think to go back five years, uh, I discovered I had type 2 diabetes. My father died of the disease, and if I'd been alert, I wouldn't have got it, but I did everything I was told to do. I ran marathons. I ran 70 marathons or ultra marathons. And I was physically active all my life. And I was one of the first South Africans to buy into this low-fat diet when it came out in 1977. Okay. So as far as I was concerned, I was doing everything I could. So when my father died of type 2 diabetes, it never struck me that I would actually get the disease as well. Right. So I continued to run and uh, got fatter and my running got worse and I got less healthy and I couldn't understand it. And I just thought, well, let's just age. Right. Someone, I, someone told you, you were just, you're just getting old. <laughs> that's exactly right. And then eventually, by complete chance, I came across the book, The New Atkins for the New You by Westman, Finnick, Finney and Volek. 
And I read that and I was absolutely astonished. I thought, here I'm a medical doctor and I have a lot of background in exercise physiology and nutrition. And I had no idea that there was all this research done on low carbohydrate eating. And so I decided then and there that I would never eat carbohydrates again. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so you're not a man of uh, balance. You're more of a man of uh, I'm all in. <laughs> I think that's what my wife will tell you. She said she never bought into the low fat story and she never ate the margarine and so on. And she continued to eat fat. And I was a stupid one who. <laughs> I did so well on the diet on this on the eating plan. And then I started researching it, and eventually you begin to see the truth. And for me, the truth is very simple. It is that the commonest medical condition in the world is a condition of insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And that if you're insulin resistant and you eat too much carbohydrates, your insulin resistance gets worse, and ultimately you present with diabetes. And I just now know that diabetes and obesity are the same condition. Hypertension is the same condition. Heart disease is the same condition. And my profession doesn't understand it. So we treat all these conditions that I mentioned before as separate diseases, but they're not. They're all the same. Hypertension is not a risk factor for heart disease. It is heart disease. I love and that. So on. And, and, that's, and the same with obesity. Obesity is not a risk factor for anything. It is the disease. And so I then eventually learned that the reason why the low carbohydrate diet works is because it lowers your insulin secretion. And if you're lucky, it can pretty much normalize everything. So then I went on the, the, the diet. Then fortunately, we wrote a book called The Real Meal Revolution, which has sold more than 160,000 copies in South Africa. So we generated quite a lot. Congratulations. Of Thank you. And I've always, uh, I've always given my money to research that I make from books. And so we decided to form the Noakes Foundation with my family and a couple of board of directors. And our goal is to really to help people understand what I've just spoken about, that, that diabetes and obesity, are we can beat them, but we have to realize that it's the diet that we're eating, which is the killer, and we have to change it somehow. And I don't know how we change it, but at least I can, we can study the biology behind insulin resistance and obesity and diabetes. And say, well, this is the evidence and this is the biology and we just have to understand it, reverse it, and we should be okay. That's awesome. Professor Noakes, a lot of my listeners know what insulin resistance is, insulin sensitivity, but will you please say it the way you like to explain it? Because I know some people don't know what insulin resistance is and, and what that means in the body. Yeah, thank you very much. That's very important. So insulin resistance is a condition in which the body starts resistant to the action of the hormone insulin, and it just gets worse, and ultimately you develop type 2 diabetes. But essentially, when you take carbohydrates, the glucose rises in the bloodstream, the, the pancreas detects it and has to secrete something to get the glucose down, because glucose is pretty toxic if it rises in high concentrations. So we secrete insulin, and that takes the carbohydrates out of the bloodstream, and it stores it, and it often stores it as fat in the liver or fat in the adipose tissue. Now, if you're insulin-sensitive and no family history of, of diabetes or, or heart disease or obesity, you've got an, the insulin works very well in your case, and you will take out the carbohydrate from the bloodstream and store it. And it won't upset the system. But if you're insulin resistant, as I am, and all people with type 2 diabetes, 
and all people with obesity, the insulin doesn't work quite right. The cells become progressively resistant to its action. So instead of the glucose going easily into the cells, it struggles to get into the cells. As a consequence, your glucose levels remain elevated and you have to secrete more insulin. And the key when you secrete the insulin is it becomes the problem. So the, the argument currently is that it's this repetitive high insulin concentrations that ultimately lead to obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, dementia probably, and probably cancer as well. So it's not the glucose levels that are going up and down and up and down. It's the insulin itself? That's correct. And the person who really developed that theory is from Stanford. And it's Dr. Jerry, Dr. Jerry Ray, Raven. Sorry, I'm getting the bit tongue-tied there. And, and he was the first really to show this. He started working in the 1950s and he wanted to know what is insulin resistance because it had been described. People had said that there are two types of diabetes and the one is associated with insulin resistance. But no one really knew what the insulin resistance was. And he spent the last 60 years studying the insulin resistance syndrome. And his most, re- well, not it, but his most recent paper, a recent paper of his, sets out the hypothesis that it is insulin, repeatedly high levels of insulin, which cause the arterial damage that causes most of the problems in diabetes. It also causes you to be hungry all the time, so you tend to eat too much. And most importantly, it stores, it locks up the fat in your fat cells, so you can never release the fat for energy. So people who are eating a high-carbohydrate diet and are insulin-resistant basically take the carbohydrate out of the bloodstream and store it as fat because insulin is this fat-building hormone, and then they can't get the fat out of the cells because insulin is elevated and prevents them from using the fat. And the brain says, my gosh, you're starving. There's no fuel available because it can't see the fat stuck stored away. And so it says you've got to eat more, and so you eat more carbohydrate, and you just perpetuate this vicious cycle. So ironic. Yeah, and and the only way to break it is you have to bring your ins- your insulin levels down by eating a minimum amount of carbohydrate. Now, I might have misunderstood you, but it I thought that I heard you just say that you are insulin resistant, like you are still insulin resistant. So it it reminds me of someone that was an alcoholic 20 years ago and they haven't had a drink for 20 years, but they still say, I'm a, I'm a dry alcoholic or I'm a recovering alcoholic. They still identify themselves as an alcoholic. No, you, you yeah. said you are insulin resistant. I would have thought you were insulin resistant. Explain that. that yeah, thanks, Chris. That's a very important point. You see, the, the old model that I was taught at medical school and which is taught at 99.99% of all medical schools is that the reason we get fat is because we're lazy and greedy and we eat too much and we exercise too little, so we get fat. And then the fatness causes insulin resistance and then we might become diabetic. But that, according to that theory, if you stop eating and you do lots of exercise, you lose the weight, you lose your insulin resistance. That is not true. People who are insulin resistant are insulin resistant for life. It is true you might reduce your insulin resistance a little bit in your muscles if you exercise a lot and you lose weight. But the effect is marginal because the key problem is it's the insulin resistance in the liver and in the pancreas. That's where the problem of diabetes uh, arises. 
And so, and you can't reverse that. You will remain insulin resistant in those tissues. And so if you study the, the condition thoroughly enough, and not like many exercise physiologists who forget that there's a liver and a pancreas, and they just study the muscle, they'll tell you, oh, yes, you lose weight and you become physically active, you can reverse your insulin resistance. That is not true. You may change a little bit the insulin resistance in the muscles, but the primary problem, which is in the, which is in the pancreas and the liver, you can't correct that. You, it, it's, I, might, I shouldn't say you can't correct it fully because we do have people reversing their type 2 diabetes. But I still think that they are not normal. They're impaired. They, and there are insulin resistance in those tissues, but they've just got enough of normal function that they can cope if you keep their carbohydrates low enough. But if you rise, raise the intake of carbohydrates, they will go back into the diabetic or insulin resistant state or become obvious. So, so the, the point that I'm making is that insulin resistance is in your genes and you make it worse by eating lots of sugar and lots of carbohydrate. And then you damage either you damage either the liver or the pancreas. I'm not sure which one is the more important. That becomes terminally insulin resistant, and then you develop type two diabetes. And that's in in ninety percent of people, or so at least fifty percent of people, is not reversible. Oh, okay. I uh, hmm. I'm just thinking about that because that's a that's a. I'm thinking about like patients that I've that I've worked with that and you know even myself personally and and you know I've done a lot of different things with my diet over the years as as far as like how many plants I'm eating and what kind of macronutrients I'm eating and stuff like that. So you think you're what you're talking about is you've seen in your research that genetically you're either predisposed to insulin resistance or you're not. It's not and then it has to be activated through your lifestyle. Is that correct? Or is it just like you're sort of doomed to, to have it? No, you're absolutely not doomed. That's a very, very good, important point. And you see, the reason, in my view, why insulin, diabetes and obesity become so prevalent across the world, and not just in the United States, but in South Africa as well, is because the majority of the population were always insulin resistant. But because they weren't raised on a high sugar diet and probably polyunsaturated fats as well. I'm not sure about the latter. But if you're, as long as you don't get raised on a high sugar diet with lots of polyunsaturated fats and probably lots of carbohydrate, your insulin resistance will never become apparent. And that was the state in the United States of America before 1977 and in this country the same. When we changed our dietary guidelines and said, now we must eat lots of carbohydrate, we started to expose children from the age of six months when they wean to high sugar, high carbohydrate diets. And then within four generations or three generations, it's probably been now, we then made diabetes and obesity an epidemic because each generation was getting slightly more insulin resistant. And now it becomes apparent that the population is insulin resistant from a very young age. So that the rates of diabetes go up, but more importantly, the diabetes starts to start at earlier and earlier and earlier ages. It's so sad. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting that comparing my father and myself, I was much more physically active and I stayed lean for most of my life. And uh, but I ate more carbohydrate because I was a marathon. Runner. Right, right. And you spaghetti must- spaghetti right, dinner right. carbo loading, right? That's right. Now, but he didn't, and he ate a lot of fat and a lot of protein. He did eat some carbohydrate, 
but nowhere near as much as I did. Yet I and I got my diabetes younger than he did. Oh, and but I was the guy. I was the healthy guy, and I wasn't because it was the diet that was the problem for me. That it was the G my genes, his genes, which which I inherited from him, obviously. They couldn't cope with all that carbohydrate, and so I got the disease even before he had, at his age, had got diabetes. Right. So, in a way, could you say that it's a moot point if you have insulin resistance? In, because so many people have the genetic makeup to have it, yeah, right? Exactly. And so then it's really just, it's only expressed based off of if you're living a certain lifestyle, you know, more sedentary, certainly. I, um, well, at least that I would think more sedentary would help lead to it. I, I don't know what you th- would say about that. But then also, of course, eating a lot of carbs, as you've said more than once already. Um, so all you have to do to stop expressing that is just change your lifestyle, which of course is easier said than done at times. So it's like you could yeah. either start from, what's the difference if... Let's say I had a twin at birth. Mm. What's the difference between me uh, eating a standard American diet until I'm, say, 40, and then like realizing, oh, shoot, I have type 2 diabetes, and then my twin eating, let's just say, like a sort of a paleo type of a low carb kind of a diet, and never, he has the same genes, but just never expresses it. Do we both have insulin resistance? And if we start, and if I change my diet to his diet, does my health essentially turn back to what his health is? That's a great question. And then my answer would be that that your brother, in this hypothetical explanation, would never develop type 2 diabetes. If you don't eat the sugar and the carbohydrates, I don't think you can get it. And, and, and of course, exercise is critically important. And, and I think I'll add that in. So if you if you're your brother were to exercise, eat a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, avoid all sugar. In my prediction is he'd never develop type 2 diabetes, regardless of how bad his genes are. And, and that's the key. But now, if you reach 40, you may reverse it. So we have a lot of people who reverse it clinically. In other words, from the outside, their symptoms seem to disappear. And one of the first, exper- one of the first trials we'll be doing, starting quite soon, is to take people who have had type 2 diabetes and have so-called reversed it on the start and to see, are they completely normal or aren't they? And I don't believe they're normal. I think they're still highly insulin resistant. But they were able just to correct the things to so that they could cope with, let's say, 25 grams of carbohydrate a day. But if we were to put them on 100 grams of carbohydrate a day, we would very quickly get them back towards diabetes. And so that's my opinion. So your person at 40 years, if you stopped eating the high carbohydrate diet, did lots of exercise, lost the weight, you may well look like you've cured your type 2 diabetes, but I doubt that it's properly cured in the sense that you can go and do whatever you like. No, you have to stick to that low carbohydrate diet. But even and hope, but even my hope even my brother my hypothetical twin that I don't have, but uh, let's let's just say that this guy, you know, like you said, he he exercised, you know, the right way. He he ate higher fats and healthy diet, so he doesn't have diabetes. I have diabetes. You're going to recommend I start to exercise and eat like him, correct? Yeah, absolutely. and you're going to exercise. You're going to recommend that he continues to exercise and eat like he has been, right? 
Correct. And we'll both, I'll have diabetes, he won't. But essentially, I guess what I'm asking is, is like, so what? Like, I mean, if we're both, so, go ahead. Yeah. You've reduced your life by 10, 10 years, expectancy by 10 years, I would guess. Okay. Even even if I even if I like reverse it and all that stuff, it's am I essentially? It's like my health is a more like his health is going to be in fifty years. That's a great question. Now, if you were able to get your insulin right down to normal, because you see, diabetes is actually a disease of excess insulin, not not too little insulin, mm-hmm. and that's that's type two diabetes, and it's something we don't recognize. Type two diabetes, right until the the very late stages, you're over-secreting insulin all the time. And it's this over-secretion of insulin. So let's say you were able to cut down on your insulin secretion. Then maybe you could normalize your life expectancy. But it's very unlikely that's going to happen. You're probably going to need medication. And under those circumstances, you're going to, your life's going to be five years shorter compared to if you'd never developed a type 2, a period of life in your life where you had type 2 diabetes. So I think that once you have type 2 diabetes, however it's treated, even if you reverse it, you're not quite normal. And I wouldn't expect you to have an absolutely normal life expectancy. Gotcha. Okay. I I hope these questions aren't too weird. I, I know that they're a little esoteric, but uh, it's just the way my brain kind of like sifts out... Uh, sifts out the truth sort of like or what you're uh, what you're trying to present well it's it's so important because you know this is the so let me just come back to that as I, as you were speaking we know that 50 percent of adult americans already have insulin resistance because they have diabetes or pre-diabetes that's that's 50 percent. so that means that any dietary advice we should be giving to americans should be either for that 50 percent not for the five percent that might be insulin sensitive so if already we diagnose 50% as insulin resistant without even trying to find, go and examine the other 50%, what proportion of Americans are insulin resistant? It might be 60%, might be 70%, might be 80%. And I'm not just focusing on the United States. Every country in the world has this problem. And I've just been to India, and they, they talk about India being the, the diabetes capital of the world. Oh, really? I've never Turns heard of that. that in, yeah. Well, it's still not, really. It's the Pacific Islanders. But I think in terms of numbers, India probably has a better measure. I think China probably is worse because they're such huge populations. But in percentage terms, it's the Pacific Islanders who are the worst. They have much more diabetes and obesity, and then their populations, diabetes rates can ra- run to 60% in a population. Of course, these, but these are small populations on, the, on these islands. But, but the point about India, I was going to say the South African population is about 50 million. In, a, in India, 50 million people die a year of diabetes. So, you know, there's an entire South African population wiped out each year from diabetes in India. And then you start to realize, you know, this is not a trivial disease. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not. I, I don't think anybody thinks it's a trivial disease. Um, so, the, again, I'm going to ask like a couple of questions that might seem sort of like a tangent, but I just to kind of like understand a little bit better the physiology of the insulin and what, you know, all of my listeners can do in their own bodies to try to help improve uh, their own health, their own lives. So are you, as an exercise physiologist, you're aware, I'm I'm just going to say this thing that I've heard that a lot of people call insulin the storage hormone, right? Right. And so insulin is anabolic. You agree? Yes. yes okay. And 
bodybuilders, so anabolic sort of means building up. Catabolic means your your body's breaking down. So there are bodybuilders that will take things like steroids and and different anabolic hormones. And to my knowledge, it's a little bit more recent, but there I've I've heard about bodybuilders taking insulin to produce so and then that's to produce an anabolic state so that of course they can build bigger muscles and be ginormous and what does that do uh, in terms of insulin resistance diabetes uh inflammation that's occurring uh in their bodies things like that you know it's uh, only an hour ago i was speaking with one of our researchers that we fund and uh, he's he does fabulous research on obese lions and obese baboons. We're a monkey, and uh, they they become fat when they're given carbohydrates as well because they become insulin resistant. And he was showing me how they how do you detect in an animal that is dead whether it was insulin resistant or not? And they look for certain biochemical markers in the muscles, for example. And in the discussion, he said, "Now what you're seeing here." And he showed me the process. He said, it's exactly what happens in the bodybuilders who inject a lot of insulin. And they make, them, they make their muscles insulin resistant by injecting all that insulin. And he showed me the pathways by which it happens. What we didn't discuss is why that insulin resistant muscle should become more hypertrophied. I don't know what that mechanism is. But you're absolutely right. He was explaining that a muscle, as it becomes more insulin resistant, can become bigger if you're using it in the way that these weightlifters and bodybuilders are doing it. So yes, they're using insulin. Their their long-term risk is that they're going to get arterial disease, particularly if they're taking steroids, because I think steroids also damage arteries. So they they may be getting bigger, but they're not going to look good or be healthy in 10 or 20 years' time. Wow. Scary. So similar question. I am currently pursuing a nurse practitioner license, and um, so I'm doing some clinical hours in hospitals and uh, skilled nursing facilities, and so many people in the skilled nursing facilities are diabetic. I mean, I don't know what the percentage yep. is, but it's 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 got to be close to 95%. And... A huge majority. Again, I'm. I'm. I'm not. I don't know the exact statistic, but I, I'm going to guess like eighty percent of them or something are what they call insulin dependent, and so the ooh, the ooh, nurses ooh, just okay. walk around like before every meal with an AccuCheck, and they they stick their they prick their finger, the patient's finger, and they get a reading, and then based off of the reading, okay, your your blood sugar is one hundred today. Well, the standing mm-hmm. order that the medical doctor has written for you, they they almost always have a ladder, and it's like if you're if you're glucose is 100 to 120 then you take one unit of insulin before your before your lunch if it's 120 to 140 you take two units if it's 200 to 240 you take eight units of insulin you know and and there's all so on and so forth the and and like you said in the beginning you said all these you said you listed several diseases you know diagnoses Mm. and you said listen they're they're really all the same disease and i love that way of approaching it um because almost everybody in these facilities and you know they're end stage 
their end stage, but it's easier to see. It's just easier to observe from the outside what's really happening to people in their 20s, 30s, 40s on the inside. And exactly. And yeah. this is these are this is what the end result of living this uh, what I'm going to call the standard American diet, which is probably sort of. Uh, mm ethnocentric or whatever right, right? but world. standard across yeah. the world so i i guess the i guess the question is is what do you think about that i mean like you kind of have to give them insulin or else or else they're not going to yeah. deal with you know because because they're not going to yeah. get up and like i mean the short of like putting them on a paleo diet and getting them on like a healthy exercise regimen and at that stage of life it's going to be difficult to do that i mean what do you think i mean uh, is there a different is there a different alternative yeah, what you described is criminal negligence. That's what you described. And you see it in every hospital around the world. It's not the North America. I'm not criticizing the doctors in North America because that happens globally and it's criminal neglect. We know that once you put a diabetic on insulin, their life expectancy is shortened and that they will get all the complications. And why? Because we're treating a disease of insulin resistance. We're not treating a disease of glucose. And so measuring glucose is not what we should be measuring. We should be measuring insulin. And it's like treating an alcoholic. You don't give them more alcohol. You don't treat a person who's over-secreting insulin more insulin. It just makes it worse. So we're not treating the right disease. We're treating the symptoms, not the cause. The cause of diabetes is insulin resistance. You make insulin resistance worse by giving more insulin. What makes insulin worse? Insulin resistance worse? High carbohydrate diets. The way you treat diabetes is those people have to be restricted to 25 grams of carbohydrate a day, and that's it. No more. That's what I that I didn't admit to you. I'm type two diabetic. I live on a 25 grams carbohydrate a day, and I do not require insulin, and I've got pretty good glucose control because I use standard medications. And as soon as you get on insulin, you're in real trouble. So if you take those patients early on, not now when they're so insulin resistant that they've lost, the, they've lost. If you take a diabetic early on, you cut their carbohydrates to 25 grams. All the insulin they will require, if they were insulin dependent, is the early morning shot, the, the long-acting insulin. And you don't measure the glucose before they eat, you get them to eat a high-fat diet, and guess what? The glucose doesn't rise. So they don't need insulin when they eat. And so that's how you get your diabetic patients, even if they, they have to have insulin, to be using only one dose a day is by doing it that way. But if you're going to give them carbohydrates, you have to, and you believe in this model, you've got to give them insulin after the meal because the glucose will be high. But that's not going to cure the, not going to solve the problem. So it is terribly sad that we teach diabetes completely wrongly. There's type 1 diabetes, which is insulin, in, there's too little insulin. They have to have insulin. Type 2 diabetes is there's too much insulin. If you give them more insulin, you kill them. You've got to get the insulin down. You've got to get the glucose down normally by, by low, eat, eating a low carbohydrate diet. And so, unfortunately, the, it will come about that we will realize that we were treating diabetics all wrong. And there's going to be a much gnashing of teeth because the people 
we're prescribing that dietary approach to diabetes, we'll, we'll be held accountable, be culpable, because the evidence is all in the literature. You just have to read it. And it shows if you want to manage type 2 diabetes with any range of success, you have to cut the carbohydrates and you have to cut the insulin. And that person then has a, has a chance of living a reasonable life. Um, I'm going to put some show notes up about about this on my website. And um, I would love it if you or your, um, your foundation could provide a couple of the uh, literature articles that you're talking about that, that you like. Yeah. Are you willing to do that? Yeah. I can tell you now, Dr. Jason Fung has a great website, but he's also a great speaker. And he, there are two videos or doc on, on, on YouTube. And if you just type in Jason Fung, if you NG and diabetes or something like that, uh, that's where your, where your listeners will be able to get two brilliant articles, uh, two brilliant lectures explaining what I'm saying now. He's the guy who really alerted me to this, the fact that it's just, we just treat patients appallingly. And then you have to ask why, and you have to say it's because the companies are producing insulin to sell insulin. And unfortunately, companies don't want us to stop using insulin. So they're not going to tell patients not to eat carbohydrates because the moment patients reduce their carbohydrate intake, the insulin requirements go rocketing down. And that's not good for business. So, um, okay, quick aside here, 25 grams of carbohydrate is going to provide you with... uh, a hundred calories, and of course, a yeah. hundred calories is about five percent, or you know, maybe eight percent of yeah. what you need in your in your daily intake. So, it's just to kind of put it into perspective for for my listeners that are wondering, like, what is twenty five grams? Because a lot of times we don't think of food in in terms of grams. Um, yeah, can right. you sort of like explain like maybe what a meal or a day might look like uh, if you're eating 25 grams or less of carbs? Yeah, well, it'll be my typical day. So my 25 grams will come from from milk. So probably, and I, I'm guessing now, probably 100 ml, 100 milliliters. Again, unfortunately, that's not your units, but maximum 50 to 100 milliliters of unit and the rest will be vegetables. It will be leafy vegetables. And that is it. Nothing more. That's it. It's milk and vegetables. Because as soon as you go to bread, one slice of bread is going to be 20 grams. Uh, an apple is going to be 20 grams. A banana is going to be 25 grams. You got, you're gone. One apple and you're gone for the day. Okay, so not so much let, fruit. No, I, I, eat, I eat no fruit. I, you do, I can occasionally eat a berry, some berries. And you can get quite a lot of berries for 25 grams. But uh, that's, a, that's it. Fruit is a luxury. Once you're a diabetic, it's a luxury and you... You absolutely can't afford it. So it's milk and vegetables. And that that gives you an idea of all the stuff you have to cut out. Yeah. And when you're saying milk too, you're saying 100 milliliters. This is like total rough math in my head, but I think that's like three or four ounces. Yeah, like exactly, yeah yeah so i mean uh because I'm, I'm just trying to think in in my head i believe 12 ounce a 12 ounce can of pop is i think 355 milliliters i think yeah, and I so agree. you're looking yeah. at three four ounces just for the listeners so that's not a lot of milk and in fact if you place it with cream you'll do better but the, because i'm i'm a bit lenient on the milk and that's that's kind of where i get most of my carbohydrate from aside gotcha. from, from from leafy vegetables but there's no potatoes, there's no rice, there's no pasta, and, uh, and no bread. 
and there are no sweets. I haven't eaten a sweet for four years. There is no chance of eating uh, the, the confectionaries. There's no confectionaries in this diet. And, and that's the issue. So once you – I saw my dad die from type 2 diabetes of the worst form. He lost both his legs, and he had many other debilitating conditions. I'm he sorry. didn't unfortunately get renal failure, which is the worst of the lot, or go blind. Those are, the, those are probably the two worst complications. But once you've seen that, then you'll say, hold it, I don't want to go that way. And if you are going to eat more than 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, you're not helping yourself. You're, just, you're going to get the disease. And it's going to get all these awful complications. Yeah, and speaking of ways to not want to go, people are now talking about Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes and like going back half hour to what you said that like certain types of dementia are basically the same disease as as type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance at least Mm. man it's uh that's a really scary complication I mean probably dementia is well for the family dementia is is probably the worst disease because patients don't die of dementia they they hang around and they just use up all the family's resources to keep them alive. And so it's, that's very demanding. And again, I, I'm pretty sure you're quite right that it's type three, type 3 diabetes. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so on your website, the Noakes Foundation website, it says that one of the questions that you're trying to answer is you want to determine the optimal diet for individuals. Two questions here. And then, and then I'll just let you answer both of them however you sure. want. Do you recommend or do you assert that all humans should be on 25 grams of carbs or is that only once they're diagnosed with insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome or diabetes or something like that? And then the second question is, how do you term, determine the optimal diet? Is it just that you're holding the carbs at 25 grams or does it have to do with, is it more complicated? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it is more complicated because if we had the answers, we wouldn't, wouldn't need to worry about them. But to answer your first question, you're absolutely correct. No, 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 no. We do not say all humans must eat 25 grams per day of carbohydrates. What I think is that there's an optimum intake of between 25 to about 200 grams and whereas before, I used to promote athletes and advise them to eat up to 600 or 700 grams of carbohydrate a day, I now know that that is completely wrong. That if you're marginally insulin resistant and you're eating 700 grams of carbohydrate a day, it doesn't matter how much exercise you're doing, you're going to get into trouble sooner or later. So even for people in the Tour de France cycling four or five hours a day, they can probably maximize their performance on 200 grams a day. I'm not saying that's known for true, for certain, but that's what I would probably think. So no one should be eating more than 200 grams of carbohydrate per day. That would be, and so my point is that the ideal diet for you, for each of us, lies somewhere between 25 and 200 grams of carbohydrate a day. And it's the diet that minimizes your your insulin secretion. And you need to find where that lies. And, and that's not easy because we don't test for insulins. And so we don't know. But we do look, we look indirectly at your glucose control. And if your glucose control is good, then you're probably eating the right amount of carbohydrate. So your What's second an op- thing, Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So you asked, how do you determine the optimal diet? Well, my view is that we should start from, from a very young age and we should be monitoring levels of insulin resistance. And the easiest way would be to measure insulin during the day, pre- preferably in the morning and perhaps during the day at some other times. 
And as long as the insulin remains low, and I'm not quite sure because no one's ever done it, what the low values are, you'd be fine. But a very good marker is your glycated hemoglobin or the HbA1c, glycated hemoglobin percentage in your blood. And that is, that's a complex idea, but glucose, as we mentioned, damages proteins. And if you've got a high glucose all the time, it damages the protein that it's most in contact with in the blood, and that's the protein hemoglobin. So the experts can take a blood sample and measure how much of the hemoglobin has been damaged by glucose. That's the glycated hemoglobin, and it's a percentage number. And if your value is below five, you are in perfect health. You're insulin sensitive, your diet's great. If your value is 5.5, you're on the cusp of being all right or not being all right. If the value is at six, you're in trouble. And if it's 6.5, you've got type two diabetes. Now, these values, you don't go from 5 to 6.5 overnight. It probably takes 10, 15, 20 years. So if we were to measure HbA1c values in the population, we would see that the ones who are insulin-resistant, eating too much carbohydrate, their values rise progressively and slowly over years. And as soon as the values get start to get above 5.5, we say, listen, you're a little insulin-resistant. My advice is that you cut a little bit of the carbs, and you must keep your HbA1c below 5.5 for the rest of your life. And that will mean that you'll have to cut the carbohydrates progressively with age. And to me, that's the most scientific way we have at present of deciding whether the diet that you're eating is giving you too much carbohydrate or not. Now, I appreciate that carbohydrates is not the only nutrient that's of importance in your diet. But for most of us, insulin resistance, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, that's what's going to kill us. And so it's very important that we understand controlling your HbA1c is really good for your long-term health. Okay. Um, do So did you say that you, do you have an insulin value that, that you feel is ideal? Or you did you say you don't know that? I don't know, because, you know, we normally say fasting insulin in the morning should be below about five or six or perhaps nine. But, you know, that I don't know to what extent that's ever been really studied. And uh, so w- probably that would be right. If it's above 10, you're probably a little bit insulin resistant. But what we do know, the data we have is for HbA1c. That's very okay. clear. Once the value is above, in fact, any value above five puts you at slightly increased risk of all these diseases. But if but, you want to try to manage your diet on a day-to-day basis and like, let's see what it looks like fasting in the morning and then let's see what it looks like postprandially after lunch or something like that, you can't do that with hemoglobin A1C because that correct. changes over three to four months. That's correct. So then yeah. do you recommend just indirectly measuring the insulin physiology through a glucose stick? Yeah, exactly. That, that's a very good point. I measure my glucose three times a day, and which is, which is completely useless. It's completely useless because I know exactly. I almost tell the value just by what I've done during the day. But I mean, it kind of keeps me motivated to make sure that I don't go and eat the wrong things. That'll spike my glucose. But you're quite right. If you get, you see, the, the problem is that you can't just measure the fasting glucose because a fasting glucose of five is meaningless if you don't know what the insulin is. And so when you become insulin resistant for the first stage, you'll have a fasting glucose of five, or that's our unit, sorry, 100. You know, five is roughly 100 or 90 to 100. 
in your units and it'll be there and you'll think it's fantastic, but your insulin can be sky high because it's got to drive that glucose and controls the glucose, but at a cost of a high insulin. So the fasting glucose by itself isn't of much value. You need an insulin, but let's say you had a fasting glucose and you had a fasting insulin and you knew the fasting insulin was high. So therefore you knew you were insulin resistant. Then you could look at the glucose and now you know you've got to keep that glucose as low as possible. And then you would choose foods that didn't rise, raise your glucose above 120, 140, uh, that sort of range. And then you know you're getting into good control. So if a listener wanted to, I mean, it's extremely affordable. Like, I think it's like 20 bucks maybe for like an inexpensive AccuCheck. Yeah. Um, so if somebody wanted to just get this and, you know, they don't, they're not diabetic, but they just want to check this out and stuff because they know it has to do with weight control and, and health. What time do you recommend that they, that they check their, ins, their uh, not their insulin, I'm sorry, their glucose? Like, glucose is, it, is it 30 minutes after the food or two hours after the food probably, or, or what? Probably an hour after foods. And, you know, if you see values that are going 150, 160, 180, you, you've got problems. You know, that's, that, that food is spiking your glucose too much and it'll be spiking your insulin. And a, and a simple carbohydrate meal will drive your glucose way above that. It'll drive it up to, you know, 180, 200. Got so it. The figures that are frightening. You don't want those. You want to keep 140s and below maximum. And that's tight control. And and if you do that, you, you're going to live a long, healthy life. Yeah. In your opinion... Uh, does glycemic index have much to do with it? Because you've been talking about carbs, but yeah. you're, you know, an apple has a glycemic index that's considered low. It's it's about yeah. 35 versus rice, which is like at least double that, like 70 or 80 or something like that. And and the thought process with the glycemic index for the listeners is that uh, the higher the number on the glycemic index, the quicker that it is digested and and the blood glucose goes into your system and there's a quicker spike. And then the thought process is that the insulin would go up higher and, and then you'd crash quicker and get hypoglycemic and so on and so forth. Do you think, Professor Noakes, that uh, we need to be looking at glycemic index of foods or is it just carbs? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think that the only safe carbs are vegetables which have all un or unprocessed carbohydrates. If you're eating unprocessed foods, or the carbohydrates in unprocessed foods, you, you'll be low on glycemic index. So that's the point one. But secondly, the liver doesn't know where the glucose came from, or the pancreas doesn't know where the glucose came from. And it responds to the load, not to the speed with which it appears in the bloodstream. So I know that that sounds controversial, but once you're diabetic or insulin resistant, you already have an abnormal insulin response so that your glucose... The glycemic index based on normal studies in normal humans doesn't apply to diabetics or people with insulin resistance. We have a much higher glycemic index for all foods. And so, the, and so my point is, no, it's not the glycemic index. You have to only eat foods which are low glycemic index. But even if you're eating low glycemic index carbohydrates, you must still restrict to 25 grams a day. That's All right. Case. Yeah. All right. And... So I think we're pretty clear on on what you feel about is is appropriate for a diabetic and and you are also asserting that most people should 
restrict carbs to some degree. Like in other words, like don't just eat donuts and pasta all day, regardless of your genes or your, (laughs) you know, your physiology. Uh, That's not super controversial. So, but because you're talking about insulin resistance, how, how can someone know if they're insulin resistant? Like how does someone know if they should be really watching this stuff? Well, I think firstly, let's go as we do in medicine, family history, et cetera. If you've got a family history of obesity and diabetes, you, you're at high risk of de- developing type 2 diabetes. Because my father had type 2 diabetes, I'm at a tenfold greater risk. And that's what you have to understand. So if it's in your direct family, you're at a very high risk. Secondly, if you're putting on weight with age and you get a belly roll, that, which we call the insulin roll, that indicates you're insulin resistant and you're hypersecreting insulin. And, and I look around and I see 80% of people like that which wasn't the case when I was a youngster. We, most people were lean, but today it's the opposite. So if you, if you can pinch fat around your abdomen, you, you've got insulin resistance because you're over-secreting insulin. But then if you want to make it a bit more technical, then you'd measure the HbA1c. And if your glycated hemoglobin is over 5.5, then I would say you're eating too much carbohydrate for your level of insulin resistance a level of insulin resistance and you need to cut the carbohydrates. But to me, HbA1c is what cholesterol has been made out to be. Cholesterol is a completely waste of time measurement. It is of no practical value whatsoever. HbA1c has huge potential and great value. So rather than wasting our time on cholesterol, we should be measuring HbA1c. It's not the total answer, but it is, it is as the best thing we have at the moment. Okay. My listeners are a very active crowd. Um, A lot of the, you know, they're either like racing at, you know, either an elite or uh, an age group kind of a situation, or they're just, uh, they might not be racing or competitive in any means, but they, they, they want to be active. Uh, They, uh, they enjoy being active and they know it's an important part of a healthy lifestyle. So, for people that are going out, let's say someone's going out and they're doing a two-hour bike ride, and let's say they're not diabetic, but they have some insulin resistance probably. You know, can they be eating, you know, um, let's say I'm trying to think of how to ask this question. There are there are insulin, um, there are exercise-induced insulin uh, receptors on the cell. Then that changes when you're exercising and, and shortly after you're exercising, your your insulin physiology is different than when you're when you're just sitting there. So, do you have different recommendations for people that are being active? Like, can they can they be eating dates? Can they be eating an apple or a banana um, either while they're on this bike ride or 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 right afterwards to to kind of keep themselves going? Or do they yeah. just need to become ketogenically fat adapted and? Yeah. What do you think about that? I think, uh, listen, you're speaking of the guy who developed these goos that you use during exercise. We developed them in South Africa in 1982 and marketed them and even had my name attached to it. So that's what I believed in 1982. Today, I believe that if you're exercising for two hours, you must not eat. Because if you have to eat, it means your metabolism is wrong, you're insulin resistant, you're carbohydrate dependent. There's absolutely no way you need to eat if you're exercising for two hours. If you properly adapt, if your body metabolism is working properly, you will get all the energy you need during exercise of two hours from the body fuels that you store before you start. 
And the I can't emphasize enough that the idea you have to eat during exercise is completely manufactured by industry, and I was a party to it, and I apologize. The human body does not need to eat for two hours if you're going to exercise. If you're carbohydrate, the problem is if you're carbohydrate adapted, you are always hungry and you're always eating. And so as soon as you start exercising, you start to look for the food because you think you're going to run out of carbohydrates and the addictions to these carbohydrates takes over and so you start eating again. And what is so liberating of becoming fat adapted is you just lose this connection to food. You eat when you really need to, when you're biologically driven. And so if I was exercising, and I don't exercise six hours a day now, but if I was in a six-hour race, I would say, well, okay, I'm going for six hours. That means I'm going to miss lunch. I need to stop somewhere and have lunch. That's all. In other words, there's no need to snack. Why would you need to snack during exercise? And if you're snacking, it's because it's some other reason. So I, I'm, very, I'm very strong on this one because I think that the, one of the other keys to long life is fasting. And what exercise does is it accelerates the fasting. And probably we'll find that one of the great benefits of exercise is it's, it simulates fasting. And that's why it's beneficial. So, But if you're eating while you're exercising, then in a sense, you're not properly fasting. So athletes need to learn that they do not need to eat during exercise, except if they go for six to eight hours and they're not properly fat adapted, then they might need something. So, so in my experience now, where we've got lots of athletes who are fat adapted, they'll tell you that they can go for many hours without eating, but the guys they're cycling with or running with were carbohydrate adapted. After half an hour, they start looking for food, and then they just keep looking for it. And that's the difference. Once you become fat adapted, you accept, I actually don't need to eat every half hour when I'm exercising. I can go for hours without exercising. Even without, if you're going hard? Yeah, even if you're going hard, yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no biological reason. There, there, there might be a brain effect. And so that's part of the problem is we put you in the laboratory and we put sugar in your mouth. You will perform better because it's acting like some sort of drug. But when you're training, you know, that's not what you're looking for. You want to get the body active and, and adapted. And the real good adaptations occur when you, you're fat adapting and you're fasting. That's, that's when your body really adapts in a healthy way. I'm absolutely, you said it acts like a drug. I'm absolutely convinced it is a drug. Yeah. I mean, I I have been, personally, I've been becoming more fat adapted. I, I'm not necessarily being super scientific about it. I'm just not eating nearly the carbs I was eating before. And so I've been very, very low on carbohydrates. And I notice when I do it effectively, I'm not hungry throughout the day. And then if and then if I do eat carbs though, then two things happen. First of all, if it's like a sugary thing, then it is literally like what I I've never taken cocaine, but I would just imagine it's like that. It's like this it's this huge rush like uh that that you don't notice if you're if you're if you're sipping on a pop every 3 hours, you don't notice it. But if if you're just eating like nuts and seeds and and vegetables and and stuff like that like and then you go and you eat a macaroon it's like wow you know like i mean you this huge rush 
so but then you but then the other thing that happens is that i don't know exactly how long but like let's say an hour later holy moly i i am ravenous now like i have to eat again and i don't want to eat brazil nuts i want to eat another macaroon you know like (laughs) well well there you describe the phenomenon you know and that's why we've got fat and that's why we've got unhealthy and it's that mechanism the fact that it stimulates your hunger and that it 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 addicts you and so you're always looking for these addictive foods it's amazing how does caffeine affect insulin resistance brilliant question i don't know um you know no one has ever come up with a study showing that caffeine was bad for you but that's a very valid question i, I suspect it might actually op- work the opposite way it might improve insulin resistance but but that's a good question i simply okay. don't know yeah. okay fair enough how does someone we're going to start wrapping it up here. I really appreciate your time and, and we've taken up almost an hour of it and I, I want to let you go here, but this has been brilliant. I th- thank you so much for coming on. I just want to try to get a couple of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Something that's like actionable for people, something that for people that are, um, again, if they're diabetic, I think that they already got the actionable item. It's like, oh, yeah. cut your cut your carbs, right? <laughs> but for but for the person that that they're like, ah, oh, you know, maybe I'm insulin resistance a bit, you know, like, I'm not sure, but I want to be healthy, blah, blah, blah. Let's say that they're an athlete. And let's say that they want to be more fat adapted. How do you go about doing it? How do you how do you is it just like boom, cold turkey, stop eating carbs, or is there a, a way to ease into it? What do you think, Professor Noakes? Yeah, I think though there's a way to ease into it. I think firstly that there are some things you shouldn't eat. One is sugar. Sugar has got to go. It's just. And you mean fructose? You mean plums? You mean like any any sugar? No, no. By that I mean the white sugar that you add to your tea or your coffee, or that is present in ninety percent of processed foods in the United States. Got it. That has to go. So that means you've got to cut out a lot of processed foods as well. In fact, you've got to cut out all processed foods. So that's, in a sense, when you say cut sweet, we mean cut processed foods. The second thing is wheat. Wheat is going to become the sugar of the next generation. It's clear that we struggle to metabolize wheat. And for many of us, wheat produces minor symptoms about which we are not aware. And it was only when I cut wheat that I got rid of about four or five minor medical conditions, which I just thought were, again, effective aging. So those are the two things that that I think you will live a lot healthierly if you cut the, the sugar and the wheat. And you can do that. You can certainly cut the wheat quickly. The sugar is difficult. It's difficult to cut sugar that you add to your drinks. You have to do that gradually. It took me 14 months to get off my sugar addiction. Then I think that you say, okay, fine, I'm going to try and aim. Let's get to 200 grams of carbohydrate. And you've cut the bread because you cut the wheat. You've cut the pasta. You cut the rice. You cut the potatoes. You cut the very the, the carbohydrate-rich fruits like bananas, perhaps apples. And then you start eating more fat and you focus on the fat. And I know that's very difficult because people have a fat phobia. But you start looking for the more fatty foods, the full cream dairies and the cheeses, the macadamia nuts, the avocados, the fatty fish like salmon and mackerel. And those are the foods you start looking for. And then you, if you've got the basic, if you build your diet around those things, you've cut out a lot of carbohydrates, you've added quite a lot of fat. And you'll probably bring your carbohydrate intake to about 200 grams without, without problems. And the beauty is you've, you're eating food that is delicious. It's much more delicious than the rubbish that you've thrown out. So you have to understand, as you described, 
that a lot of the processed foods we eat, we eat only because we're addicted to them, not because they taste taste good. But get on the high-fat, moderate protein diet. It is delicious. It's fabulous food. And you start to feel better and more satisfied, as you described. What about people that say... um don't eat meat because meat has been meat eaters. There's been like studies uh, that show that people that eat meat uh, have higher incidences of almost every chronic disease. Is that because they're eating sugar with it? uh, Brilliant. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. We don't know what else they're doing. You see, those are called associational studies and associational studies mean nothing. And unfortunately your Harvard school of public health, has done a great disservice to the world because they have become the best known nutrition researchers in the world. And they do only associational study, or 99% of the studies are associational. And they have projected them as if they prove causation and they've produced dietary guidelines on the basis of associational studies which do not prove causation. So you're quite right. A person who eats a lot of meat might also be a cigarette smoker. He might never run marathons. He might be sedentary, he might be divorced, he might do, I don't know what else. And it could be any of those factors other than the meat eating that causes the problem. So that's, that's the issue. The only data that you can really look at is, is prospective studies. And when you look at prospective studies, they don't show the same relationship. For example, 12 of the elements considered to be healthy in, by the Harvard, Harvard studies they were looked at in prospective studies. Not one of them showed any benefit. And that's the problem. Once you, what, you What's a prospective study? Prospective, great question, is when you do it, you take people and then you change their diet and you see what happens in 30 years' time. So to prove that meat is dangerous for you, we have to take people and we have to put one group on meat for 40 years and the other group have, are not allowed to eat any meat. And they must do everything else exactly the same. They must smoke as much, they must exercise as much, they must get as married, they must get divorced as much in both groups. They must live alone as much in, equal in both groups. So I think you're getting the idea that we can never prove what foods are good and what are bad. And then there's a final point about associational studies. Even if you think associational studies can prove causation, they can only prove causation if the relationship is very powerful. For example. We know that people in associational studies, that people who smoke were at a 20 to 50% greater risk of developing lung cancer than those people who don't smoke. Notice I heard, I said 20 to 50 falls greater. The studies coming from Harvard show that, let's say if they found that meat increased your risk of cancer, the difference would be 1.5 times greater, 1.5, which is meaningless. You have to get above two, three, four, five times as increased risk for the association to mean anything. So if Harvard came along tomorrow... For it to be statistically significant. Biologically meaning, well, that's right. You see, what they did, they dropped the bar and they said anything above one. If it's 1.01, in other words, it's 1% greater risk, then it's greater risk. But that's rubbish. So they dropped the bar right down. If Harvard did a study tomorrow and they said, we found that in meat eaters... The hazard ratio, that's what we call it, of meat eating for cancer was five times greater. I would say, you're home and dry, you proved it. It's not five times. It's 1.05 times. And they say that's significant, and that is completely wrong. 
So whenever you see these associational studies, you have to look at the hazard ratio. And if the hazard ratio is below two, it's a meaningless study. And therefore, and a hazard ratio of two would mean it's a 100% increased risk. But when you find a study where it says that that, that uh, meat eaters are a hundredfold greater risk of cancer, never. It's 10%, 15%, 20%. When you see those numbers, it's meaningless, completely meaningless, because that 15% could be explained by the fact that might, they were smoking more, doing less exercise, they had the wrong genes, who knows? Who knows what? Now, I don't mean to you know, beat a dead horse here with this question, but I just feel like there's a lot of confusion and I just really want to try to clear it up here. So you are talking about, from a scientific standpoint, you're saying it's important to limit your carbs, depending on what population you're in, either to less than 25 grams a day or less than 200 grams a day. And you're saying that's backed by science. Yeah, and, and good good science. Okay, the, the, and the good. How do people know the difference? Because um, in clinic, I see people that you know they, um, you know they just they they say, look, there's studies here, there's studies there, there's studies here, there's studies there, and some people think you got to be a vegetarian, some people think you have to eat all raw, some people think you have to be ketogenic diet, some people, you know, and it's there is some science, and some of it is like. Uh, Maybe it's good science, maybe it's bad science. How does the average individual who's not a medical doctor, not a PhD, how does the average person, do they just have to like read a book and then decide like, well, I like Professor Noak, so I'm going to trust him because he's in the know? Or like, how can they, how can someone that's just like the average Joe on the street be like, yes, this is clear. Now I understand this is good science. You have to understand that most of the science reported is rubbish. It's, it's as simple as that. It is so tainted with, with conflicts of interest that you're not going to get it right. And that's a tragedy. So when you pick up the New York Times tomorrow and you see that there's a study proving that whatever causes whatever, you'd be very cautious that that is not tainted research. The editor, a former editor of The Lancet gave a talk a week or two ago and he said that you, you just can't trust any science anymore. And I mean, that, that's a terrible statement. Just so you, just so the listeners know, the Lancet is one of the world's most uh, well-renowned, peer-reviewed uh, journals. That's correct. So the answer is that if it's an associational study, you can forget it. it it's meaningless. And and I promise you, New York Times, most of the articles reported there on nutrition are associational studies. Why? Because it's almost impossible to do randomized controlled trials, prospective studies where you take 40,000 people, lock them up in a jail for 40 years, and then prove that one diet was better than the other, because that's what you have to do. We're never going to have those data. All the data we're going to have is studies lasting maybe two or three years in which biological markers are used. And we have to guess which biological markers are going to be really important. From those studies, if you are insulin-resistant and you go on a high-fat diet, at the end of two years, you will be much better off than if you had with those markers than if you ate a high carbohydrate diet. For example, your blood pressure will be down, your weight will be down, and the markers that we like, like the HbA1c and the glucose and the insulin and the triglycerides, all of which are pretty important, will be much better on the high fat diet. 
So that's the one bit of evidence. The other bit of evidence is that historically, when societies ate more more fat and more meat, and again, I don't promote meat. I promote fat eating fat. But societies that ate more fat and more with including more white or meat or whatever meats, they did better. They didn't have the diseases. They didn't have cancer. Cancer was not prevalent in South Africa or Southern Africa or in Africa when the missionaries first arrived here in the 16th, 17th century. They didn't see cancer. And then cancer comes as soon as the white man's diet arrives. So that, that tells us there's something about our diet which is likely causing cancer. And then again, you look at the biology of insulin resistance and you see what happens when you eat. We can explain now, if you're insulin resistant, eat carbohydrates, it's going to mess up all of these components of your metabolism. So it's never one strand of evidence that we follow. There's never one study that can prove anything. You have to look at the totality of the evidence. And, and I've looked at the totality of the evidence. I've treated patients on this diet and I've followed my own experiences. And when I look at the totality of the evidence, it's abundantly clear to me that our big problem is insulin resistance. And the problem with insulin resistance is a high carbohydrate diet. Yeah, that's great. One last question here. I want to clear up about dairy uh, because that's another big one that's, I, I think, controversial. There are some people that are sensitive to dairy and a lot of people that are eating more fat are getting some of it from dairy. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember where now, um, but I read that dairy, even though it's like, it's, it's not high glycemic and it's not, mm. there's a lot, there's a lot of fat in it. There's protein in it and stuff. I've heard that it has some kind of insulin, like stimulating yeah. effect or something like that. Absolutely. Cause it's got lots of carbohydrate in it. And, oh, because uh, it has carbs. Yeah. Okay, as well as fat and as well it as... May well, it may well have other proteins that stimulate insulin, but it is, you're quite right. That's why you have to constrict, control your milk intake. And that's why cream is better because it's much, much less carbohydrate. You know, I, 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 the, literally you can go into the literature and you can read one study which says, or one review which says that dairy protects against heart disease. And you can read another one which says the opposite. And that's the problem. I happen to th I think rather more that dairy is probably healthy for, for most of us. I'm, I'm not concerned. I, I eat a lot of dairy. And I, I think it's very difficult to be on the paleo diet or the high-fat diet without eating dairy. You'd have to eat a lot of av avocados and, uh, and, and lots of macadamia nuts and lots of coconut oil. So right, I, right. Find it e I find it easier to take it as dairy, take the fat as dairy. Okay, sir. That has, uh, that's been great. Thank you for the, your time. And uh, anything else that you want to communicate or uh, including, you know, if people want to find out more about you, uh, maybe your book, or maybe they want to find out more about your foundation, where would you like to send them? Well, if they could just type in the Noakes Foundation on Google and they'll probably find the Noakes Foundation. They will. A book called The Real Meal Revolution, which really stimulated this, the, the eating revolution in South Africa and introduced what we call the Banting diet, which is the high-fat diet to South Africa, and has really just taken off in South Africa, this diet. That book will be available in the United States within the next few weeks. So it's been published globally for the first time. And our follow-up book is called Raising Superheroes, and it's been released in South Africa next month, and hopefully around the world in January. 
But those two books try to explain why insulin resistance is the key problem, that we know how to prevent obesity, and that if you have obesity and you read Real Meal Revolution, you'll be able to reverse it. But much more importantly, in our new book, Raising Superheroes, we say, if you follow these guidelines from the day your child is born, that child will never get fat, and they'll never have to count calories, and they'll never have to worry about their weight. And so that's that's the next book. And I'm I'm really excited. The, the two books together, I think, are are a substantial advance on helping people understand the, the what is insulin resistance and why, if you are insulin resistant, you must eat a low carbohydrate diet. Professor Noakes, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show, Chris. You bet. Take care. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.